Still not loving it. Anyway, the following is a couple of film reviews and some random thoughts. Eh, could go either way, to be honest. The Nightingale, first viewing. Synopsis. Set in Tasmania, Van Diemen's Land to be historically accurate, The Nightingale tells the story of Claire Ashling Franciosi, a young Irish convict who, following a cruel and tragic attack on her and her family by a sadistic British officer, Sam Kaplan, sets off after the officer and his posse in search of vengeance. She employs a local indigenous tracker, Baikal Ganembar, to insist her on her journey. To assist her on her journey. Not insist her. I waited a while to finally see The Nightingale, Jennifer Kent's follow-up to her successful debut, The Babadook. I saw it just the other day, and by my count, it's close to five years old now. I delayed watching it because I'd heard such mixed and off-putting reviews. Even the critiques that praised the film fell short of recommending it. In fact, phrases like, not for everyone, depressing, even repulsive, were littered throughout even the most positive reviews. Talk about damning with faint praise. No wonder the box office for the film is subdued. Having now seen the film, I can, to a certain extent, understand these responses. Kent's film is, first and foremost, a slightly frustrating experience. And not just because of the harrowing events and character choices that shape much of its narrative. It's frustrating because so much of it is so good that the areas where it flounders or falls flat are all the more grating. It's too long, for one thing. Too long by at least 15 to 20 minutes, in my estimation. I mean, stripping away any social, historical, or psychological components of the story, it's essentially a revenge tale, and as such requires a tighter narrative for the audience to truly invest in its outcome. Also, there's a degree of repetition, even heavy-handedness, in much of the melodrama that propels the narrative. The film's villain, Captain Hawkins, displays his low character and acts of repeated villainy throughout the film's runtime. In fact, he stomps around Tasmania's wilderness, villaining so much it almost becomes risible. A subplot in the middle of the film's odyssey depicting the prolonged sadistic treatment of a young indigenous woman, played by Magnolia Maimuro, which echoes the brutality suffered by Claire earlier in the film, seems especially gratuitous. The point has already been made by then, surely. There are also other subplots and characters that are introduced during the film's runtime that have little or no effect on the story and are quickly and unceremoniously dropped. The film, though, is redeemed by several of its attributes. The first being the acting, which is uniformly excellent. Franciosi, in the lead, is mesmerizing. Her character's every emotion and instinct is powerfully expressed to the extent that the audience empathizes with Claire throughout her journey even in spite of some of the baffling actions she takes. Franciosi's portrayal is so raw, in fact, that the actress seems to undergo a series of physical transformations throughout the film. Her face and body seem to change before our eyes, and not as the result of any effect or prosthetics, but rather simply through the internalization of her character's rage, regret, and redemption. It's truly one of the best performances I've seen in years. And she can sing, hence the title. Similarly impressive is Baikal Gamba as Billy, the tracker Claire employs and grows slowly to respect. His performance is so compelling and charismatic that I couldn't help wondering what a film centering on this character as its lead might have been like. He manages to portray both the role of comedic sidekick 
a no-shit action hero with equal expertise. And despite my earlier comments about the villain Captain Hawkins, Sam Kaplan manages to give his arch-nemesis character enough nuance and motivation to just avoid the mustache-twirling cartoonish quality that Park may have had with a less talented and intelligent actor in the role. Damon Herriman also deserves praise for his committed performance as Ruse, Hawkins' viciously pragmatic underling. Herriman gives a brave performance playing such an amoral coward of a character. The film is also beautiful to look at. Cinematographer Radek Ladzi, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that name. I think I may have mispronounced a few names in this review so far, but this one I'm going to screw up completely. So I might just call him Radek, okay, or the cinematographer. The cinematographer Radek finds something breathtaking in the austere, forbidding landscapes the characters move through. If the Nightingale is a Western, Radek lends it the same unique visual beauty that films like McCabe and Mrs. Miller or the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford did within the same genre. Finally, if this film succeeds at all, and it does, it's largely due to Jennifer Kent. The flaws of the film that I mentioned earlier are there, they're unavoidable. The flaws are often the byproduct of daring and original work. The film's many highlights are due to Kent's ability to deliver complex, believable characters who manage to draw an audience to them, often despite their actions and contradictions. The mutual animosity Claire and Billy initially feel toward each other rings true given each character's circumstances, as does the slowly developed and earned bonding of the two later in the script. Jennifer Kent also displays an impressive command of tension in a number of visceral action sequences that occur in the second half of the movie, going a long way to shaking off some of the torpor and uneven pace that dogs much of the uh, first half. It's of course possible that Kent is deliberately being deliberate. <laughs> See what I did there? giving the film an unconventional, pensive momentum in order to distinguish it from other movies that cover similar territory. The recent series of crowd-pleasing, self-conscious revenge stories from Quentin Tarantino, for instance. The Nightingale, at its best, brings to mind other powerful Aussie quasi-westerns like Fred Skepsey's The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, Steve Jodrell's Shame, or John Hillcoat's The Proposition. It's to Jennifer Kent's credit that she followed up her impressive debut with this, a film in a different genre on a significantly larger scale, rather than playing it safe and making something more like The Babadook, which, given that film's success, she might have been expected to do. Her decision to not be pigeonholed shows off her daring and her range and makes, well, this review at least, that's me, uh, curious to see what she might do next. I'd give this movie three stars out of five if I were a real film reviewer and was given the such narcissistic cliches as a fixing star rating things. But I'm not, so I won't. Mank, second viewing. Synopsis. Mank tells the story of famed and troubled screenwriter Herman Mankiewicz, Mank to his contemporaries, as he struggles to complete the presumably first draft of the screenplay for Citizen Kane. Mank, the character, is hampered in this significant endeavour, first by being confined to bed or crutches following a recent car accident, but also by his worsening alcoholism, disputes over the direction of the script with John Hausman, and a debate over screen credit with Orson Welles. Also, the ghosts of Mank's past won't stay buried, and the surprisingly personal details that keep cropping up in this thinly disguised parody of William Randolph Hearst keep causing Mank a degree of emotional turmoil. 
This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies, and don't let anybody tell you different. So states Arliss Howard, playing a rather frenetic Louis, Louis B. Mayer, as he blusters about his studio lock, barking, hard-bitten philosophy to anyone who'll listen to a typically clever and entertaining scene in this bleakly charming film from David Fincher. It's a great line in a movie full of them. In fact, the fast-paced, crackling dialogue is one of the great assets of the film, largely because it's so emblematic of the era in which the film takes place. Jack Fincher, David's dad, has fashioned a script which is both wholly self-aware and evocative. Nobody, except for the Coen brothers or possibly Aaron Sorkin, writes dialogue like this anymore. But in Hollywood of the 30s and 40s, erudite verbal epigrams were as ubiquitous as CGI or comic book origin stories are now. This film is deliberately anachronistic. This is both greatest features and simultaneously one of its most dire problems. It is intelligently stylized to a fault. Anyone unfamiliar with Hollywood of the early 40s in general and the making of Citizen Kane in particular might be put off, bored, or confused by the constant esoteric flourishes of Mank. The look, the sound, and the shifting time frames consciously evoke Wells' celebrated classic. The references to directors and stars of the era, all studio-owned, and the surreptitious politics employed by powerful corporations like MGM may also leave modern audiences cold <laughs> if they have no interest in or knowledge of the events of that particular time and place. Louis Mayer's campaign of propaganda against author and candidate for governor of California, Upton Sinclair, for instance, becomes a major subplot in the film. Fincher certainly doesn't go out of his way to explain things to the uninitiated either, and, and this may strike many as an aloof, even rather smug attitude on the part of this director. I've heard quite a few professional critics state that while they respect and admire the film, they have little interest in re-watching it. I think this is a mistake, but one that I understand. I felt that way too in my first viewing. I appreciated the film, but felt a little alienated by the style Fincher employed in its telling. But then I watched it again, prepared this time for all its meta-touches and esotericism, and was swept up in the story and characters. What seemed forced and too self-conscious on first viewing felt smooth and organic now. This time around I could fully appreciate the complexity, rueful depth and tongue-in-cheek wit of Mank, both the film and the eponymous drunk at its center. Which brings me to the cast, and as with The Nightingale, one of the film's great strengths is its cast all of whom give some of the best performances of their careers. I'm personally very pleased that Amanda Seyfried is finally getting the acclaim she deserves. Her Oscar-nominated turn here as Marion Davies, Hearst's much younger girlfriend, is compelling and layered. Davies' <laughs> Davies friendship with Mank throughout the film is well-developed, and if I were inclined to use flowery expressions like provides the beating heart of the story, I would certainly use it here. But I'm not inclined to such flowery expressions, so I guess I'll have to think of something else. I'll come back to that. Or I might. The entire ensemble cast is great. The aforementioned Arliss Howard, another actor who deserves greater acclaim for his body of work, as Louis B. Mayer, is sublime. Lily Collins is Rita Alexander, the headstrong nurse who gives as good as she gets while worrying over the fate of her missing RAF husband. Charles Dance, urbane and quietly menacing, 
Of course he is. He's Charles Dance. He could do a Bane and Quietly Menacing while in a coma, as William Hurst. Prince Middleston, as Manx's steadfast and witty wife, poor Sarah, are all equally excellent. Am I suffering from Manx-like DTs, or was that Bill Nye the Science Guy playing Upton Sinclair? But it's Gary Oldman who deserves most of the acclaim. Going into this film, I didn't know very much about Mank the Man. I only knew him a little through his work. But Oldman's superlative performance truly lifts the character off the page. Oldman creates a complex and contrary comic and tragic protagonist who is compelling and sympathetic even when he is being sour and self-destructive. Like all great screen performances, Oldman elevates everyone around him. I've heard quite a lot about historical inaccuracies in this film, and that may be true. I'm certainly not expert enough to say definitively either way. I did think the character of Orson Welles came off a little shortchanged. If we were to believe this movie, Welles seems to have had little to do with the creation of Citizen Kane, a claim that's a little hard to swallow. But don't forget, people have been saying similar things about Citizen Kane itself for the past 80 years or so. Almost from its 1941 release, many critics and commentators have condemned that film as being inaccurate, biased, even farcical and slanderous. But that may be the Fincher's, both Jack and David's, ultimate esoteric flourish here, to make a grand apocryphal film about another grand apocryphal film. Who knows? The Poison Chalice of Acclaim. Random Thoughts. It's almost Newtonian the way our culture tends to elevate, then destroy. It happens so often and so predictably it feels virtually elemental, like the coming and going of the tide or sunrise and sunset. I was having this thought recently after watching yet another glowing review of Everything Everywhere All at Once, the most universally acclaimed movie of the moment besides possibly Top Gun Maverick. But I feel that Top Gun Maverick's acclaim is on surer footing simply because it had the ambivalent misfortune of missing out on winning the major prize at the Academy Awards, a double-edged sword if ever there was one. There is, in fact, much to be said about not winning the Best Picture Oscar. History has shown us many times that it's arguably better to be a well-regarded runner-up than victor in that particular race. It's better to be Citizen Kane than How Green Was Your Valley. My valley, correction. How Green Was My Valley. It's better to be Goodfellas than Dances with Wolves. Better to be Brokeback Mountain than Crash. And certainly better to be Saving Private Ryan than Shakespeare in Love. I sometimes can't help wondering how Barry Jenkins and the producers of Moonlight felt in 2017 when they at first missed out on the dubious honor of Best Picture, only to be cruelly gifted with it moments later. Let me be clear, I liked everything everywhere all at once. It was a truly unique cinematic experience. I saw it one week after having sat through the similarly themed Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. And while that film was a crushing, sanctimonious bore of a movie, in my opinion, the Daniels' film was refreshingly light in its feet. It was irreverent and funny, uh, which gave it the ironic effect of being ultimately more deep and profound in the Marvel film. Which, good God, was trying so hard to be profound. <laughs> the fact that a movie like Everything Everywhere All at Once that mixes sci-fi with action and comedy, three genres which have historically been unlikely to grab the Academy's attention, and also the fact that it's just so fucking weird, and that ultimately one best picture actually should have been more surprising than it was, but its acclaim preceded it and made its victory kind of predictable. 
But I like the film, so I don't want to give the impression that I'm wishing bad tidings on its legacy or anything like that. I just can't help casting my mind back to similarly lauded films that won Best Picture throughout the years. For a surprising number of them, the luster didn't last as long as you might expect. I'm sad to admit that I'm old enough to remember when Driving Miss Daisy hit cinema screens. It was universally beloved at the time. There was no, or very little anyway, talk of tone-deaf racial insensitivities or historical naivety, with which the film is utterly littered today. In fact, I was one of the few people at the time who didn't pick it for a dead cert Best Picture win. My money was on Dead Poets Society or Born on the Fourth of July, a costly mistake at the time. I was on minimum wage then, that five dollars was a devastating loss. You could get two beers in a city bar, albeit at happy hour, back then for five bucks. It cost me two beers. But I digress. I also remember Dances with Wolves, Braveheart, and American Beauty. All three films lauded far and wide in their day, which now are spoken of mostly with squeamish ambivalence or even outright dismissal. I'm not sure whether it's because of certain stars or directors falling into disfavor. I've heard that obnoxious, craven-sounding buzzword problematic attached to all three of these movies. Or whether the themes or commentary in the films seem less relevant today, but you wouldn't believe the esteem these titles generated only a couple of short decades ago. And The Artist is a film within recent memory, isn't it? Does anyone actually remember it? I mean, really remember anything about it besides maybe the dog? If pressed, all I can say about it is it was a gimmick movie that borrowed the premises Singing in the Rain. Clever enough in its way, but let's face it, Mel Brooks's silent movie was funnier. In 2011, though, it charmed everyone in the film industry and had no one in doubt that it would take out most of the major awards that year. Now it's barely a footnote. I'm not saying everything everywhere all at once is doomed to a fate of faltering esteem necessarily. Not all Oscar winners have suffered this fate. However, it's interesting that the movies that were considered divisive and controversial picks by the Academy in their day, Titanic, Forrest Gump, for instance, have come to be more affectionately and nostalgically accepted by audiences today. The trouble for everything everywhere all at once is that it's so festooned with praise and awards that it seems, given the perverse nature of popular opinion, destined for some kind of backlash in the coming years. Viewers in the near future may not view as, as ecstatically as we did a prestige picture which includes sausage fingers, ratatouille rip-offs, and butt plugs among, among its narrative features. But art is subjective and esteem is nebulous, so who the hell knows? Cocaine Bear Review Synopsis a drug smuggler impulsively drops a large consignment of cocaine from a plane before plunging to his death. Several packages of cocaine land in the Chattahoochee National Forest, where a wandering black bear proceeds to consume much of the white powder. The bear subsequently becomes highly confused and aggressive and embarks on something of a cold-blooded... Take two. Synopsis. A drug smuggler impulsively drops a large consignment of cocaine from a plane before plunging to his death. Several packages of cocaine land in the Chattahoochee National Forest, where a wandering black bear proceeds to consume much of the white powder. 
The bear subsequently becomes highly confused and aggressive and embarks on something of a blood-soaked killing spree. There are low-concept films, high-concept films, and then there are films like Cocaine Bear, which is basically all concept. The title is doubtlessly evocative in that it evokes not only the premise, but also the entire raison d'etre of the movie. People flocked to this movie because they wanted to see an American black bear ripped off its face on coke doing some crazy shit. That's what the trailers and copious YouTube videos promised, and that's what the movie delivers. Director Elizabeth Banks keeps the gore and hilarity dialed up to 11, for about, say, 80% of the film's runtime. The third act, possibly unavoidably, softens into something more predictable and even slightly schmaltzy. But before that third act dampener comes along, Banks and her team deliver an impressive first hour of self-aware, comedic B-grade excess. The ambulance sequence is particularly well-staged and thrilling. The plot is thin, of course, and that may account for how the screenplay frequently feels overstuffed with characters, as though in compensation for narrative absence. That doesn't mean that the characters completely lack appeal. Several of them stand out, largely due to the performances of a talented, eclectic cast. Kerry Russell is reliably solid in the lead. If the movie has a lead character besides the eponymous bear, it's probably Russell's well-meaning single mother and nurse, Sari. Highlights in the supporting cast include Isaiah Washington Jr., Margot Martindale, and the late Ray Liotta. The film is dedicated to Liotta's memory as this was his final film, for now. It's become something of an odd phenomenon lately that when a movie star dies, a half-dozen or so films suddenly release, all claiming to include the actor's last, last appearance. The kids are both good too, and that's something that isn't always guaranteed in this type of film. Kid characters can often come across as cutesy, maudlin, or obnoxious. But here, Brooklyn Prince and Christian Convery both deliver believable performances, and even more impressively, display genuine comic timing. O'Shea Jackson Jr. and, oh, here's a name I'll fuck up for sure, Alden Ehrenreich. I've never been able to say that dude's name, I just call him Young Solo most of the time. Uh, uh, they, these guys have promising chemistry together, but ultimately their characters aren't given that much to do. Of course, the best performance in the movie by far is the eponymous Ursus, which is my pretentious way of saying the bear from the title. The bear from the title is brought to life by motion caption actor... Caption... Shut up! The bear is brought to life by motion capture artist Alan Henry, aided by some impressive CGI. If this performance is indicative of Alan Henry's talent, then Andy Serkis should really watch his back. This bear is almost as frightening and a lot funnier than the one that so terrified viewers of The Revenant a few years ago. Okay, I should wrap this up. In thinking of a way to wrap this review up, um, shopworn phrases like leave your brain at the door, etc. come easily to mind. But the truth is, if the title and trailer alone have included you into the idea that this movie is going to be B-grade fun at best, then there's not much to be said for you. If, on the other hand, a bit of B-movie splatterfest absurdity is what you're looking for, Cocaine Bear should definitely fit the bill. For an hour or so, anyway. You might also want to check out Renfield. Just a thought.